Welcome back or to the Sleep Research Society podcast. My name is Jesse Cook, and I serve as host of the Sleep Research Society podcast, which is purposed to disseminate and discuss the latest findings in sleep and circadian science. Before diving into today's episode, it is critical for me to emphasize that the views expressed in this podcast are solely those of the individual being interviewed and do not reflect the views of the Sleep Research Society or its affiliates. Also, this podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be taken as medical advice. If you believe you have a medical problem, please speak with your doctor. The recent decade has brought an explosion of novel technology to the market, purporting the ability to quantify and classify sleep, as well as at times capture circadian characteristics. Over this period, research has identified strengths and limitations of these devices through evaluation studies while also demonstrating evolution and estimation abilities due to both hardware and software changes. The progression and abilities of these devices, along with the recent changes to the landscape of traditional actigraphs, nudge the field of sleep and circadian research towards an important decision on how to integrate the existing and emerging alternative consumer devices into future research. To begin progression into this new era, a team of experts in the space of wearables and sleep and circadian measurement was assembled to develop a manuscript outlining the current state of science and recommendations for using wearable technology in sleep and circadian research. In this episode, I am joined by two of those experts, Drs. Max Dazenbody and Kathy Goldstein, to discuss this manuscript as well as the current and future landscape of wearable sleep and circadian tracking technology broadly. Before diving into the interview portion of today's episode, here is a brief background on today's guests. Drs. Max Dazenbody and Kathy Goldstein. Dr. Max Dazenbody is a neuroscientist and innovator holding the roles of co-founder and chief scientific officer at Lisa Health, a digital health company focused on menopause and healthy aging, while also serving as a principal scientist at SRI International Center for Health Sciences. Additionally, Dr. Max Dazenbody is an associate editor for the National Sleep Foundation Sleep Health Journal. Dr. Days and Body's expertise spans across diverse domains, including sleep neuroscience, cardiovascular and endocrine system functionality, digital health, women's health, and digital biomarkers. He is a recognized authority in wearable sleep technology, being among the first recognizing the potential and impact of consumer-grade sleep tracking devices. Among his work in this area, Dr. Days and Body first introduced practical standardized guidelines for evaluating the performance of wearable technology, leading several initiatives to promote the informed use of wearable technology in research and clinical studies, including the state of the science and recommendations for using wearable technology and sleep and circadian research from the Sleep Research Society, again, the topic of today's podcast. He also introduced a new journal type within Sleep Health to specifically host studies aiming at evaluating sleep technology. Dr. Kathy Goldstein is a professor of neurology at the University of Michigan Sleep Disorder Center and faculty lead of the EFDC Mobile Technologies Core and the UM Mobile Technology Research Innovation Collaborative. Dr. Goldstein's research uses consumer-facing sleep tracking devices and mathematical modeling to assess sleep patterns and circadian rhythms in the ambulatory day-to-day setting to determine their role in health and disease, including in women's reproductive health, multiple sclerosis, and gastrointestinal conditions. 
Her international expertise in sleep tracking technology is highlighted by her role as one of these lead authors of the State of Science and Recommendations for Using Wearable Technology in Sleep and Circadian Research from the Sleep Research Society and as a member of the Task Force for Consumer Sleep Tracker Guidelines by the World Sleep Society. She serves the sleep community as one of the senior editors of the Sleep Field's Sentinel Text, Principles and Practice of Sleep Medicine, and additionally holds editorial roles for Up to Date and the Journal of Clinical Sleep Medicine. She was previously the chair of the American Academy of Sleep Medicine's Artificial Intelligence and Sleep Medicine Committee and speaks internationally in this area. In her work at the UM Sleep Disorders Center, she cares for patients with various conditions such as obstructive sleep apnea, insomnia, restless leg syndrome, and circadian rhythm sleep-wake disorders, as well as participating in the training of future sleep physicians. She is the sleep department's physician champion for virtual care and EPIC, and the billing and compliance officer for neurology. So without further ado, here is my interview with Drs. Max Dazenbody and Kathy Goldstein. I hope you enjoy. Drs. Max Dazenbody and Kathy Goldstein, welcome to the SRS podcast. You know, I've had the privilege of interviewing many sleep and circadian scientists at this point, some of which I had relationships with previously and some not. I will say this one, extremely special for me. You two are some of the more longstanding relationships I've had in the field. And it's not just collegial relationships, I feel at this point, but just like true friendship. And even beyond that, you two are also mentors in many ways from a professional standpoint, but also a personal standpoint. I'm always amazed at seeing your families grow and blossom while juggling all that you do. So I'm extremely grateful that we found time to do this interview. Um, Selfishly, we're going to be unpacking a manuscript today that also includes me. So I get to highlight myself as well and the work that we did together. But before we go any further, we always have to start with a really important question. Max, how are you doing today? Well, Jesse, I think it's a pleasure to start my day with the SRS podcast. Everything's shining. As per usual, everything's shining for you. And I'm surprised you're not doing this from rock climbing in some mountainous cavern or something like that in the Bay Area. Your background suggests that you are, but I don't think you are. Well, now, uh, today, I'm pretty quiet uh, sitting at my desk, but uh, in a couple of hours, uh, I will be out. As expected. And Kathy, how are you doing today? I'm good. I'm just enjoying a quiet, rainy morning in Ann Arbor. Since moving to the Bay Area, I have forgotten what rain actually is. Um, <laughs> so you're going to have to remind me, is this the stuff that falls from the sky, sometimes makes our clothes wet. Is, is that what you're referring to? Yes, that's it. It's very cold here and unpleasant and gray. <laughs> well, it's fitting for a run the football game plan then, right? For University of Michigan. Is that how it's shaping up? Sure is. We'll see. Harbaugh's up the street. We'll see what he does today. Fantastic. Well, thank you both again for finding time. And I think we've let the cat out of the bag. We're actually recording on a weekend. Look at us academics go. Um, setting boundaries for our work in life very, very well. But thank you again very much for joining me. Before we get into anything scientific, it's always really important for the listeners to get to know the guests. And I imagine many in the field who are listeners will know both of you since you're so well entrenched in the community and do so many amazing things. And naturally, I gave a 
brief orientation to your backgrounds with the biographies to kick off this episode. And I really appreciate you both for sending those over. I don't like writing them myself. You made my job easier. Thank you. But we'll start with this. Kathy, can you tell us about your journey to this point in sleep and circadian research and also medicine, I suppose? Yeah. So I've always known I wanted to be a doctor and I actually have a math degree from college. And when I got into medical school, I just found, you know, I I just didn't like memorizing things without really understanding them. And when I found neurology, it reminded me of a mathematical proof. So you were building on principles and tenets to come to a conclusion. And that's why I ended up doing a neurology residency. And what led me to sleep was the problem with neurology is we don't do any preventative health. And I think that's really crucial to furthering medicine and sleep really allowed that integration of central nervous system physiology, but also understanding things and managing things in a way that improves our health in the future. And that's how I decided to specialize in sleep, which led me to a fellowship in Northwestern where I was trained by Phyllis C. And I'm sure all of our listeners know Phyllis C. And that is when I absolutely fell in love with the sleep and circadian field. Um, This was 2009, 2010. And then what happened next? Smartwatches hit the scene. So it was just really all of these different pieces coming together who that have really made me into the clinician scientist that I am. Beautiful. And we are grateful that you found neurology, that you found sleep, that you found Phyllis Z, and that smartwatches emerged. Well, maybe we're grateful that smartwatches emerged. That <laughs> remains to be seen. But we'll have to put a shameless plug in here for Olivia Walsh, too. Uh, no Kathy Goldstein introduction would be um, fully complete without the great and powerful Olivia Walsh. And um, Max, same question to you. Can you please tell us about your journey to this point in sleep and circadian research? Well, I will say that uh, has been uh, has been paved by by great mentors that uh, make me uh, most slowly fell in love with the field. I started uh, as a biological psychologist uh, curriculum in neuroscience when I was back in the training, my bachelor and master. And uh, I actually I was lucky that I found a PhD position that uh, was uh, was opening, uh, and uh, they were uh, they were um, running uh, an experiment uh, uh, looking for uh, insomnia disorder in young adults. And uh, <clears throat> back in the time, I was uh, uh, fascinated by methodological uh, aspect of uh, psychophysiology, including uh, electrophysiology. And uh, it was a good combination. So I was able to bring something on myself in that type of research. And then from that, uh, I really um, start deep diving in the, in the, in the relation between uh, central and autonomic nervous system that was starting and was really my passion. I had the privilege of uh, spending one year uh, in Melbourne at the Melbourne University with a great mentor, John Trinder. And then uh, I also found uh, really my family here uh, in California at the Sarai International, uh, Dr. Fiona Baker, uh, Ian Colerine, among those uh, that really, uh, that really uh, trust me and then uh, mentor me and then uh, make me the person that I am scientifically. Beautiful. And um, 
you know, I'll share a little bit about our recent connection in the Bay Area as well, because we're not too far. We're stones throw away from each other. And uh, you recently, while we were going for a walk, unpacked the relationship with Fiona and Ian and, and how special that was for you. And it really left a mark for me as well. As I kind of progress into this new era, maybe one day I won't be a trainee anymore and I will really have to kind of determine a career. And it becomes about who you want to work with. Uh, these people are, are really important. And that relationship you share with Fiona and Ian um, really shaped that for me, Max. So thank you for that. Now, Max, other than going with long walks with this really weird guy named Jesse, <laughs> what do you like to do in your spare time? Well, I will say that uh, uh, I will divide uh, before and after kids. <laughs> so uh before kids i really love uh, to do and get lost in the mountain like uh, like a massive hike uh, um climbing even outdoor and now is more like contained but still uh, i will say climbing is a big part of my uh outdoor activity or even indoor activity but definitely is part of my my hobby and that actually spilled uh, uh, everything that I, I I got left from the day between between family and and, and commitment. So that I will say is the main one. Fantastic, and same to you, Kathy. When you're not doing all the amazing things you do clinically and in research, what do you do in your spare time? I love to exercise. I'm definitely not a climber, but. <laughs> <laughs> I love exercising. And I love spending time with my two boys who are 11 and 13. I can't believe it. Um, I'm right here in Midwestern College Football Central. So that takes up most of our fall Saturdays. And yeah, just enjoying family life. Um, I'm actually nearly a long sleeper. So there really aren't a lot of hours left in the day, you know. So to be able to consider my work, my passion, um, ends up to be pretty convenient for me because there's not a whole lot of time left. <laughs> Fantastic. And I've been following you on the social media platforms and seeing your ever-progressing rock band in your home, uh, which has been really cool to see. So shout out to your boys and perhaps they can make the SRS podcast theme music in the future or something like that. We'd love it. Sweet. While we're on the topic of children, Kathy, um, clearly you're not a child anymore. I mean, I am still emotionally a child, as I like to say, but you're not a child anymore. We had probably different aspirations than for our career, our life than we're at right now. Perhaps you wanted to be a neurologist in the sleep field. I don't know. But Kathy, when you were a child, what did you hope to be when you grew up? So believe it or not, I had the Fisher Price doctor set when I was four years old. There was no question I was going to be a doctor. Now, it became very clear in residency that I did not like surgery. I did not like being on my feet for 16 hours a day. And I did not like sleep deprivation. <laughs> and I also, another thing I don't like is I don't like anything that hinders the spirit of innovation and academic curiosity. So for me, yes, I'm a physician first, but I'm definitely an academic physician and sleep has really, really been the right place for me. I love it. Max, did you always want to be a sleep and circadian researcher? 
Or what did you want to be when you wanted to grow up? Yeah, absolutely not. And I go by by what my mom say when I was kids. Uh, basically, the, 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 my inspiration was become a mechanical engineer for a Ferrari, like a, a GP1. I even had all the tool and everything, like uh, all the toys. Uh, and I don't know why, because I'm not even into cars. So, but that is what uh, what it was when I was a kid. Well, it would have been a really attractive career nowadays with all the attention that's going to F1 and things like that. Uh, so maybe you can make a transition later on if you want to. <laughs> Possibly. Yes. Uh, and that may bring us performance. <laughs> exactly. Uh, and that may bring us to our final kind of orientation question. Uh, Max, you know, maybe that's your answer. But if you weren't doing what you're doing right now as a sleep and circadian researcher and all the other things you're doing professionally, if you could have any career in the world unconstrained across the board, I've responded as baseball player, rock star, all the things. What would you choose to be? I will probably get lost in the mountain and do some kind of more extreme type of sport. That's probably what I would choose. Definitely. Oh, I so see you as a future documentary of like a free climber or some sort of like mountainous spent 10 years in the wilderness. And yeah, I look forward possibly, to that on Netflix possibly, in the yes. future. <laughs> <laughs> Kathy, how about yourself? If you were in a physician and a researcher uh, and a, a wonderful mother and all the other things, because uh, that's certainly a career in its own right, um, maybe multiple careers, what would you be doing for your career? I would probably be a math teacher or a math professor. Very cool. Logical, oriented. I think you'd be a great teacher on that front. All right. So that transitioned us a little bit to our next uh, segment of this episode, which will kind of rev the engines on the scientific front. So I've primed you both that we're going to do a little bit of word association with the scientific spin, a keyword association. And truthfully, our listeners have actually reported back that they really like this segment. So that's fantastic. And in this segment, I'm going to give each of you a term, more like a phrase, and it's your world. You're unconstrained. You can say whatever it is, the first thing that comes to mind. It could be a single word. It could be a long-winded response. Again, your world, we're just living in it. Does that make sense, both of you? Go for All right. Here comes the keyword association. We'll start with Max. Max, when I say sleep and circadian measurement, what comes to mind? Oh, I will say principle and practice of sleep medicine. It has been the Bible for me since I started the field. And so probably every time that I hear the word sleep and circadian, even together, it popped my mind there. Beautiful. And I think you had a full support from Kathy on that one. The listeners couldn't see, but Kathy raised her <laughs> arms in triumphant, triumphant success there. So uh, <laughs> fantastic. And Kathy, when you hear clinical versus research measurement tools, what comes to mind? So when I hear that, I kind of think of a divide a little bit because, and I'm just going to piggyback on principles and practice, but principles, research is very different than clinical practice. And so things that come to mind are FDA cleared, reimbursable, implementable. When I think about clinical tools and when I think about research tools, I think about 
innovation, reproducibility, and rigor. Wow, mic drop. Max, <laughs> when you hear evaluation versus validation, what comes to mind? Oh, definitely headache. <laughs> I will say that I, I uh, after starting the field of wearable tech, and we will probably talk uh, uh, later on, but uh, uh, the, the differentiation between evaluation and validation has been uh, something that go beyond semantic, uh, I think is really at, at the core of what we are trying to achieve here. So it has been a, quite a headache to make this change, this transition. Uh, and I think is is a is a key point, and I'm sure that we will talk later. Definitely, it's definitely at the crux and core of kind of where we're at currently, and and some of the challenges we're currently facing. And I, I was expecting, in some ways, maybe a response similarly about your blood pressure raising about twenty points or something when thinking about evaluation versus validation, just with the frustration component. But the headache is another physiological sensation that goes along with those feelings. So makes a lot of sense. And Kathy, to close down our keyword association here, when I say progression and integration of wearables, what comes to mind? I think about the need for transparency the need for greater control among researchers and clinicians. And I think about interoperability because if we're going to integrate anything, we need systems interoperability. Beautiful. Thank you both. I think that gets our scientific engines revving a little bit and we're now kind of preparing for flight here. So as I mentioned in the introduction, today's episode is going to focus specifically on a manuscript that will either be published when this is released or soon to be published after this is released, which is entitled State of Science and Guidelines for Using Wearable Technology and Sleep and Circadian Research. A bit of a mouthful, but I think it all makes sense. And we'll dive into the kind of nitty gritties of things in a later section of the deeper dive. Initially, we'll set a stage with kind of a 10,000 foot view of the manuscript, really focusing on the purpose, uh, the background, the reason it needs to come to be, some of the components and and how people may utilize uh, this really rich document, almost just like a true guideline, if you will. So we'll start with this and maybe uh, Max, since you kind of spearheaded this, you know, you formulated a really awesome team, we'll pass you the microphone first. And at any point, you know, all of us can jump in. I do want to draw attention that this was teamwork, and I apologize if I butcher any names, but we have Max and Kathy leading the efforts. I'm a part of this initiative as well. Luca Mangini, Marco Altini, Philip Chang, and Rebecca Robillard really appreciate all that everyone provided there. It was a great, um, I think, evidence of collaborative work, and it was just something that I really appreciated because it was efficient. And I would expect nothing less from something that was led by both of you. So well done to all around. And Max, what was the purpose and main goals of this manuscript? Well, the original idea and the main goal of the manuscript is to really provide uh, some level of recommendation of how to, to interpret and use uh, wearable data. I believe what uh, we realize over time is that uh, is that uh, people start uh, using uh, especially commercial level devices uh, without having the full story behind, without having a tool 
to 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 being able to properly use this device they become so much easily accessible that everybody jump and use it without thinking too much and that is the purpose here to make you think through what you are using what this with this type of device can provide and then uh, how you properly uh, implement this type of uh, tool for data collection in the in the in the field beautifully said and and uh, maybe I'll pass it to Kathy for this one. You know, there's been some recent changes that have emerged, you know, over time here, certain companies doing things, um, adding things, removing things, all those different. Th- what specifically, why now? Why do we need to come out with these things now? Yeah, I think what happened, you know, so Max really summarized nicely the evolution of the introduction of these devices to market and then kind of the appropriation of them by the scientific community in a relatively unguided way because of their accessibility. And the biggest concern and the initial position statement from the American Academy of Sleep Medicine focused so much on how well can these devices approximate sleep as defined by PSG. That was all we were asking and rightly so. It's our gold standard. We need to understand how these correspond, but we have a massive amount of literature now that's dedicated to just that question. And we've almost, the pendulum has almost swung too much in the other direction where we've become very convinced that these perform incredibly well, right? Why wouldn't we be using them? And the missing link is translation to the ambulatory setting and doing things in a way that is rigorous and reproducible. And that's what we're hoping the paper can get at is providing guidance on that and also exposing the gaps where we don't understand things and we don't know exactly how to reduce risk and error when we're using these tools. Beautifully said. And and from my perspective, as I've kind of been entrenched in this evolution as well and and seeing i feel like we're just at a critical nexus in some ways where the cat's out of the bag that these things can do some useful things right like we keep having these studies these evaluation studies that show pretty good agreement in certain characteristics of sleep relative to gold standards and i kept seeing other scientists get a little bit more confused in some ways between what was kind of these traditionally relied upon devices, these active watches that have really dominated the longitudinal sleep measurement space for so long, and these emerging technologies. And I think this group did a really nice job of kind of approaching this from a, this is what we have right now. And they have utility, they can be applied, but we have to be very careful uh, in certain areas and recognize that the still is progression. Um, and so I love the way you unpack that about kind of being mindful of some of the limitations that these things still have. And that was one of the beautiful things that is included in this manuscript is one, there's guidance on how to select a wearable sleep tracking device, which is cool, a whole devoted section to it. And also avoiding misleading conclusions how to be cautious with the interpretation of the findings. And I just think that it was really well done where this wasn't to just tout or to defame any sort of devices. It was really coming from an unbiased perspective 
Um, Max, is that kind of how you wanted to present this manuscript, thinking about it from just a true empirical, unbiased perspective? And with that, how do you think other scientists should utilize this manuscript? So I really hope that uh, this manuscript is uh, is uh, serve as a starting point uh, for anybody that want to to use this type of device, whether or not they are expert or non-expert. Even for expert, even ourselves, we always need to to challenge, and then uh, try to really to push the boundary and understanding uh, uh, whether or not uh, and in which circumstances you should use such as technology. Um, Everything that's been said, I really endorse. Uh, um, I just want to underline a couple of things. It's uh, we always have this type of technology in a in an early version, like actigraphic device, always been existed. Uh, what really uh, this this commercial tracker, I would say, revolution brought to the field is uh, a new type of hardware, much more sophisticated with a UX UI design, with the capability of, uh, of uh, reaching millions of people. That is the, the big game change, more than the technology per se line, more than any kind of small different in algorithm performance uh, is really the capability of massively collect data about physiology and sleep in the field over time. That is really the true revolution, not the technology per se. Of course, sophistication of the technology fuel this, but the really big revolution is this. So you have two paradigms. Before, you were able to, to collect, I don't know, 100, maximum 1,000 people, maybe one week, two weeks. Now you can go to million of people, billion of night. So any kind of statement, any kind of use of this device with such a power in terms of data collection, uh, need to have much, much more scrutiny because the, any kind of conclusion that you made is supported by a massive data collection. And then uh, it's uh, is easily that we can make this transition by trusting this and by trusting this amount of data. And just because there is much more data and much more potential power, we say, okay, well, this is the new truth. And it's not the case. Like I always say that uh, you can have a billion of night, billion of data points, but you can be billion of time wrong. So that is uh, what you need, this type of manuscript, to really uh, drive and guide people uh, to understand what they have under their hand, what are the pitfalls on the sensor, what are the problems associated to uh, um, a data, what are the one-to-one -one comparison between, between uh, what we consider a parameter in science and what uh, this device do a translation of the same parameter. There are so small, but uh, super important aspect that can make any conclusion completely faulty. And it's really our responsibility to drive uh, this, this uh, recommendation because uh, it's not definitely going to start from the other end, from the industry. So it's really our responsibility, is really our voice, is really uh, uh, our way, our decision, how we want to use this device. And that is what it is at the end of the game, this type of manuscript. That's so beautifully put. And it, and it captures this devotion to rigorous and accurate science, just true kind of scientific ethos and principles in many ways. And, and the duty, the responsibility, as you put it, for us as a community 
to really make sure that we're not steering research into hazardous waters, that we're really utilizing our measures appropriately and understanding their capabilities and shortcomings and when they do have actual applicability. And it it really reminded me of something that Dr. Michael Grander said on this episode uh, a while back or this, this platform a while back. And I think he was actually citing Michael Perlis, if I remember correctly, but I could be wrong. But it's know your measures, know your measures, know your measures. And if you don't know your measures, then your conclusions don't matter, right? Or, you know, it's hard to really understand whether they're valid or not. And so I think this is a really important step forward to better unlocking these tools for getting useful, valid conclusions from the wearable data in the sleep and circadian domain. Um, Beautifully put, Max. And we're going to talk about progression here in a bit, but from your perspectives, and uh, I'll toss it to anyone who wants to answer this, you know, this is the first state of science guidelines on this front, right, from the SRS. Do you think this will, do you foresee this needing to be updated kind of regularly? Um, Any sort of changes as the landscape changes? How do you envision this manuscript existing? Is it just going to be static or do you see kind of a dynamic evolution of it over time? Absolutely dynamic. Uh, Absolutely. Um, And especially because uh, the landscape and then uh, the use and then uh, the the development of uh, such a device that is, again, dominated by commercial level device uh, is, uh, is rapidly changed. Uh, you see devices that uh, originally target consumer and then now moving to positioning themselves as a testbed for a digital clinical trial. So the, the race is going to be increased in terms of like uh, uh, capability of a platform for research and clinical use. You see uh, a movement uh, from uh, uh, simply collecting uh, uh, specific uh, type of activities, sleep, cardiorespiratory measure, to more clinical index. And then some of these devices move to uh, require uh, FDA approval for specific feature and use cases. So the landscape is really, really moving. And then uh, we need to keep up, basically. Uh, And also one of the most important part is like, uh, we need to ask ourselves, and that again is part of this manuscript, how we want to interact with industry, how we want to use this device, what is our ask? And by saying that also, is also from our side, we need to be clear of uh, what we are able to do other than asking requests. We need to do also our homework. Like over the past uh, four years, for an example, we keep asking uh, to deliver the raw data. Now several of these companies deliver the raw data. What we did about? Pretty much nothing up to now. So we need to ask and we need also to act upon so that is the other uh, big part. But yes, I think uh, uh, there is really a need uh, to constant update uh, uh, until uh, reaching, let's say, a more like uh, advanced state uh, of uh, of uh, an cohesive response from the scientific community on uh, how we want to use this type of devices, this type of tool. Fantastic. There's two, not two main things, but two big things in the progression of this, in addition to what Max said, is these, again, we didn't develop these tools. These are not tools that are developed for science or clinical purposes. They're developed for consumer purposes. 
So the interaction thus far with industry has been reactive by us. We're reacting to what they give us and reacting to how we're going to use it, you know, and that's something that I do hope I really hope that pivots with the progression of this, that we can be in more of a proactive and not reactive role where we're guiding this at some point, just like the example about access to the acceleration data was perfect. Give us the data, give us the data. We can't do anything without the data. And then they did. And it really wasn't even commented on until we wrote this paper. The other thing is we're dealing with issues now that, medicine and research has not dealt with ever. And the FDA doesn't even know what to do. So for example, we suspect that most of these devices are using machine learning to classify sleep. And the FDA has no idea how to regulate locked versus adaptive algorithms that continue to learn in the field. And that's something else that that's another reason we need to keep updating this document. We need to keep educating the field because these are major issues. And I think it was a paper that Chris Fernandez and Nate Watson wrote that a clinician can harm a few people, but an algorithm can harm millions of people. And the beauty of these devices in increasing scope is also one of the biggest dangers that we have as well. Beautifully put both of you and so many thoughts come to mind when you when you both speak and I'm going to do my best not to steer us into uh, further tangents because we have a lot of wonderful things to cover. But one of the topics that I, I really want to center on coming up here in a second as we take a deeper dive, you both took the lid off. So we'll get to a more specific discussion on the roles going forward that scientists should focus on to progress these fields. And you both kind of took the top off it, which was wonderful. And set our stage really to dive deeper into the weeds. So we'll get our weed whackers out here. And the first thing I think that would be nice to kind of set the framework is to recognize that there has been a lot of progression over the past decade and really principally over the past five years in these commercial devices. That's been notable and and certainly laudable in many ways. Um, Yet there are dangers, as Kathy just pointed out, to problematic algorithms, things like that, problematic feedback from these devices to users on how to modify their sleep or circadian rhythms that may or may not be regulated appropriately. And I see from my own perspective, selfishly, in some of the research I want to do, some major shortcomings when it comes to nap detection abilities and classification within naps and just classification across the board and abnormal sleep characteristics, as well as the always existing challenges of differences between devices and models themselves. Um, and some of the general instability of algorithms and unknowns. But from your perspectives, and we'll start with Max first, what do you see as kind of the most glaring shortcomings, or we can frame it as major challenges at this point for research specifically? I think uh, to have a comprehensive pipeline for digesting this data and then uh, providing value in a, in a standardized way, I always envision a, pre- a pretty clear pathway uh, what I'm interested most uh, in this device that uh, is the is the hardware, is the device per se, and the way that this company maintain uh, an API, an SDK, uh, an update of this device, uh, how much these devices are penetrated in the general population. That is the value that I see in this device. I don't see like tremendous value in the process data from this device. I always envisioning that uh, uh, 
once uh, you access the, the most uh, granular data or raw data that now for several devices are available, you can get uh, an under Earth uh, accelerometry data, for an example, which is the standard that we always use for 20 years in actigraphy. And I always thought that uh, as a scientist, we have a public library of algorithms that are running device agnostic on, on uh, accelerometry data at the start and then potentially in the future expanding to photoplatismo and so on. But that is more a bit more challenging, but at least at the starting point for based on motion that uh, you, can, uh, you, you can collect the data with one of these devices and then uh, process the data in the same way with a controllable algorithm, whether or not is, uh, there is one designed for kids, whether or not there is one designed for adults or a specific elderly population with or without a disease, you have a library and then you run your own algorithm. So that I think is the vision that they have, the way that we should go. And then creating a path for industry to fit in their business model to adapt for this request. I think that is the that is one of the one of the direction that I see strongly, uh, and it's, 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 I see a challenge for the scientific community to build this pipeline. Fantastic, and and Kathy, from your perspective right now. What do you view as kind of the major hurdles or shortcomings or existing challenges for these devices, specifically in the research domain at this point? Yeah, so I am also a huge believer in the idea of having a library of sleep classifiers. And that was kind of our goal or dream back in 2019 when we um, made our classifier open source that was adapted to an off-the-shelf wearable um, these companies do have to maintain IP. So, you know, it's we're not going to get what they're doing per se, but it still doesn't preclude us from doing this, right? You know, because now that we do have this actual acceleration data, that's on us to develop that library of algorithms. And the reason that that's so important for progression is population, right? Because these devices, everyone, my patients love to tell me, my device said I have this much sleep and this much REM sleep and et cetera. The devices don't record sleep. The devices record cardiac autonomic activity and motion during the sleep state as a proxy to then estimate sleep. So if there's any inherent problem with the, with the patient as far as a condition or just person-specific characteristics that change that cardiac autonomic or movement activity during sleep, that classifier might not be correct, right? And that's why in addition to having the library of algorithms, we need to know the populations they were developed in and yeah. tested. I don't wanna take anything from any of these companies and I do believe they deserve to retain their IP, but we need to understand the population so we know we can select the right testing in the right person. And we're not going to be able to actually use these as a backbone for scientific discovery until we do that. And then also implementation is a huge process. We don't have standard data models for this. Um, the data changes, you know, based on the pipeline that you're using. We, we've seen this as a problem in our own research. When you pull data again, it might not look the same. And these are things we're not used to dealing with in research. We're used to having data managers, statisticians, but the amount of skill that it takes to manage this type of data, it really is poorly understood. 
And we need to, that's something that we presented in the paper is something that, that investigators really need to look at when they embark on this as something they're going to use for their research. It's really well said. It's uh, This library is, is should be population specific. And that is, uh, again, one of the main challenge. Most of these devices, of course, uh, they develop classifier based on uh, general population with uh, a general uh, let's say, uh, sleep health, if you want to put it in this way. But uh, again, if you want to use for advanced scientific discovery, I think uh, we should move uh, to specific uh, consideration of the population. That is one. That is uh, when we're talking about uh, uh, sleep classification. On the other hand, uh, given this new scenario, given this new uh, capability that we have, uh, we can even uh, uh, start uh, thinking of uh, moving away to try to classify sleep uh, uh, and boxing sleep uh, based on the PSG. This is not PSG. We are not measuring brain wave. So uh, I, I think we should redesign uh, uh, the feature that we extract from this uh, device and, and consider sleep, uh, uh, starting from the physiology. Sleep is autonomic change during the night. Sleep is movement change during the night. Why we should go away from this? Why we don't come back to the basic physiology and redesign a normative value for what we consider a good night's sleep based on the cardiac story, based on the cardiac autonomic story, based on the motion story, instead of trying to, to, to recreate something that, uh, to be honest, doesn't even exist. I 1000% agree with Max. I think this is the most important point of all of this. And if people need to like rewind a little bit back on that, like, please do. But this is, it's the same story with like the apnea hypopnea index, for example. Why are we taking beautiful tools that, that measure photoplasmography and trying to model a quantity that we know really isn't helpful? And that's the same thing Max just described with the wearables. We have cardiac autonomic and granular motion information in sleep. Let's look at that instead of using that to try and approximate labels that are based on surface EEG. It makes no sense. And Magda Yunus, I was, when I first met Max, I don't even remember, we were in this um, joint meeting, I think it was sleep 2017, 2018, um, when this was all first coming out, when you wrote the first white paper. And Magda Yunus said, he goes, I think it's really weird that we're using these devices to estimate PSG sleep and they don't record one parameter that's recorded by PSG. Yes. <laughs> and it just really gets to the whole like paradox that we have. Yeah. And I, I just, I applaud both of you for, for those comments because I fully agree too. And uh, it's, it is a, wonderful thing that these tools in some ways can help us start to rethink and revolutionize the way we view sleep, characterize sleep in general. Um, is that something that we're going to be willing to approach in some ways? You know, Kathy, you come from a school of medicine and it's very nice to reduce things down to easily collectible items from an efficiency standpoint in the clinical domain, right? And perhaps a really optimistic, idealistic lens affords itself to see a world where we can collect all these comprehensive signals together in a parsimonious manner and transform them into digestible outputs that have really 
more valid meanings of this behavior that we're trying to capture called sleep. I see that as a very optimistic, idealistic lens. Um, Kathy, do you think that's something that's really approachable in the near future? Or is that more something that, you know, will just have to remain to be seen? I, I mean, that's the dream. I really want that. And what you described is this vision that we have of people coming with their digital phenotype, their digital health phenotype, because they are continuously recording these physiological signals. The reality of medicine, though, is a little less optimistic, and we're dealing with things like burned-out providers that are already being faced with data that they don't understand how to interpret, and also the lack of reimbursement. And so we really need to get to a point first in showing that there's value in analyzing the sleep state in this way um, before we start rolling these things out in the clinical space. Beautifully put. And just to kind of, it's a, it's a theme that I wrote, but I think it ties into the bigger discussion we're having here in general is really about the progression. Um, to me, it seems like we've reached a bit of a plateau at the moment where kind of the integration of PPG really progressed these technologies. Then we had some further algorithm improvements. There's been some additional technology or rather advancements in the algorithms that have allowed for estimations of oxygen saturation. Kathy, I do remember from uh, our talk at sleep this year, there's there's major issues currently in kind of how we're measuring that potentially in the validity of these measurements across devices, but it's becoming more readily available, which expands the application of these devices to sleep disordered breathing estimations long-term. Um, but it really seems from my perspective that a lot of companies in the commercial domain have really caught up to each other and we've reached a bit of a plateau. So maybe I'm a miss and maybe you don't see this as a bit of plateau, but my question's more about where do you see the next progression of this wearable technology coming from either in the immediate or downstream, do you think that's coming from utilizing the information that's already being collected and advancing the algorithms, adding on additional sensors? I kind of land in that spot of, can we can we bring in an EEG signal conveniently that can really enhance the overall amount of data we're collecting or you know where the answer probably lands, which is a combination of both. And Max, with your background, I think I want to start with you on this question because you're such a signals and sensors guy and you know this stuff very, very well. So where do you see the progression really coming from next? So let me start by saying that I don't see a plateau. I see a plateau in some area, not in other area. I think there is an acceleration of biomarker discovery at this point. I see a plateau on the major wearable company if you consider wrist-worn device in terms of sensor set that they use, but not in the biomarker direction. Um, if you're talking about commercial device, uh, I see a big push uh, in other use cases, among which uh, you saw recently uh, menstrual cycle tracking passively using sensor technology, fertility windows for women, um, I see definitely a big push in uh, trying modeling uh, uh, subjective or perceived uh, and uh, objective stress level, mood level with sensor technology. 
this is uh, why I'm saying that because uh, this is our feature that uh, they hope to release in the public for for a value for the user, of course, uh, not in science in general, but that is the direction that they are taking. If you're talking about the, what we can consider new generation of clinical grade uh, or research grade devices, there is also a big push for for uh, increase the feature set for health feature, whether or not they are FDA approval. Some of these company, I just read a couple of uh, of recent statement, they reach even more than an hundred and twenty uh, biomarker that they provide. So that is there is a big push in that direction in terms of processing existing data. Keep in mind that even by having four signal, there is really a lot that you can derive. So that I think is the direction in terms of like biomarker. Uh, if you talk about the like sensor technology, I think uh, uh, you you are seeing in the past few years that uh, other than uh, the photoplatism that become extremely common and a must have. So accelerometry and photoplatism now are, are, are present in all of the device, basically. There has been a big push on temperature, probably driven by, by uh, one of the major company. I don't know. Let's avoid maybe mention the single company. But yes, there is a big push for temperature sensor. More recently, you saw GSR, galvanic skin response sensor, get embedded on the device. It will become probably a new standard. Uh, probably there will be a room for for some measurement of uh, ambient, including external temperature, possibly even uh, even uh, a push on on uh, speech analysis on wearable at some point. Uh, all the field uh, like uh, that analyze electrochemical uh, data. I don't know uh, if you are talking about uh, like a, a glucose monitor, uh, transpiration for alcohol sensor. There are a big uh, push on that direction too. That is uh, more challenging, so it will take a bit more time. But that is really promising, if you think about the field of wearable. Definitely, EG is another is another direction. It's uh, I feel like is a bit stagnant at the moment. So it's uh, it's uh, not clear whether or not we'll have a, we'll have a future. Most of this type of direction, especially when it's pushed through a, through a commercial path, a, a consumer pathway, is really driven by, by user request and value that they provide to their user, not really by, by scientific roadmap. So it, basically, you really need to pay attention of, of, of the user, the consumer, basically, what they want. And that is what you will see appear in terms of feature and capability of this device. On the other hand, is more like the the traditional research clinical pathway. Beautiful. And Kathy, same to you. Um, do you see a plateau? Uh, if not, uh, I'd love to hear about that as well. And where do you see kind of the next evolution coming from, whether it's software, hardware, both? The floor is yours. Yeah, so I'm going to answer this question in a very unsexy and practical way, but I think it's important when we think about um, progression and what we all do, which is science and clinical care. So these tools are incredibly powerful. I think these sensors are incredible. Just what we have now, even with photoplasmography and accelerometry, plus minus temperature and GSR. The problem I have is we need to tighten up our game. So Jesse, I don't know if you have interacted with this product. I know Max has, but let's think about pregnancy tests. 
Pregnancy tests are over the counter, they're consumer facing, and they're probably one of the most widely used tools in medicine, at least for women of reproductive age. What is on that pregnancy test? Does it just say pregnant, yes or no? No, there's a control. And we have no control mechanisms with these tools. We have nothing about data quality. We have nothing about certainty. We have nothing about appropriate wear. And we're using these to form the basis of science to generate hypothesis that might go on to inform public policy. And we don't even know if somebody's wearing it upside down. And I'm gonna you know, take a pulse oximetry reading from that. You know, so we really need to interact with these companies on, you know, with what we have, which is really, really good on adding these other things that actually make this a scientific or clinical tool before we kind of move forward. And before, you know, there could be some really kind of irresponsible work that's done with these. And I would like to kind of beat that to the punch before we get to it. Absolutely fantastic. And I love kind of the two different perspectives there. And, and I like where you're coming from, Kathy, as far as like, you know, and this analogy may not get there. I don't know, but it started to formulate in my brain of like, look, if we're cooking here, you know, in the kitchen, like we've got the ingredients, like we have a surplus of ingredients in some ways, like we just need to like distill down what this recipe looks like at this point uh, and really kind of hone in on um so that we can deliver that recipe and everyone else can kind of utilize it to the capacity that it should be in some capacity, in some ways. Is that where you're coming from? Yes. I love it. Um, perhaps a good analogy, perhaps not. Um, welcome to my quasi brain. And we've, uh, we'll circle back here to kind of an earlier point that you both landed on. And this theme has also been embedded in a bunch of the responses thus far, but so that Listeners can jump around to various points of the episode. I always like to give kind of summaries of the bigger pictures. And when I first emerged into this area of wearables and uh, longitudinal sleep tracking devices, the role was really about, and the term at that time, Max, you can grind your teeth on this one, was validation studies, right? Now appropriately kind of named the evaluation studies to better understand their uh, capabilities, shortcomings, and overall utility, if you will, in a certain population of individuals. And that has somewhat changed. You know, I think Kathy and Olivia, you've done a remarkable job, kind of let's open the door on trying to figure out these algorithms as well, not just the evaluation of the capabilities, but let's try and understand these things a little bit better so we can really unlock their true potential, things like that. Where do you see the role of the scientist? Now, I've heard the terms, you know, working in concert uh, synergistically in many ways with the consumer domain to try and um, leverage the power and improve the reliability, accuracy and overall utility. Definitely, I've heard about kind of building libraries of algorithms that can be open access and employed across these devices so we can get more consistency across the studies, things like that. Max. Where do you see the role of the scientists currently in these tools as sleep and circadian measurement? And perhaps do you see that changing over time as well? Well, I mean, it's, uh, it's really an extremely complex uh, answer here. Let me try to cover a couple of bullet points. Um, as you notice, like uh, I really strongly point out the misuse of the term validation several times. For uh, some 
clear, let's say, strongly opinion that I have, which is used to just having a checkbox and say, this device is valid. And we did the same game with standard actigraphy. We accept standard actigraphy for 20 years with devices that provide a performance of a, a classification of sleep and wake that rarely exceed the 50% in terms of accuracy for the main parameter that we want uh, to, to measure, like the amount of sleep disruption, so the amount of wake. Just because we run a study and we run a comparison with polysonography, we just say that device is valid. Starting from the point of view that it is not a standard, there is not a threshold to consider valid or not. So just by having this comparison, for people is validated, is not. And it's definitely uh, not even uh, uh, tested on, a, on, a, on, a, on so many factors that you should consider when you test this device, like population, condition, uh, in the field, because at the end of the game, you use this device in the field, not in the lab. So there is a huge amount of problem with this concept of validation. At the end of the game, I found out that it's a checkbox for people to be able to write a paper, an introduction, a discussion on a grant. And that uh, was upsetting me. And so I say, well, let's stop calling validation until we have a proper pipeline for what we consider valid. And then after we have this pipeline, we can call valid or not a tool under specific circumstances. So that is what uh, why I try to abandon. And that is uh, something that I think is a miss in our field. How? What is the criteria for consider a device adequate for a specific use? Not only for commercial device or consumer device, but also for traditional clinical tool that you use in the field. There are so many now uh, company that are could be considered research or clinical grade device that have a pipeline of measure that they offer. What they consider valid just because they run a comparison study with uh, ground through devices, but all of this uh, uh, paper and then uh, literature that they provide, we as a scientific community, we don't have uh, a way to say whether or not is uh, truly valid, is adequate. If you provide a performance of, I don't know, 60% accuracy in one parameter under a specific condition and a population, now is valid, I can grab this device and use indiscriminately on any kind of population, any kind of condition, even, even if it's a research grade? No, it should not be the case. So I think what we should build is, uh, is really a framework for, for evaluating in which circumstances, under which uh, uh, threshold of performance, under which uh, uh, population, a device, whether or not came from consumer grade or clinical grade, but I'm talking about remote assessment, can be used, and we don't have it. And I think it's a huge, giant limitation. I fully align with that. Agree. A lot of head notes from Kathy as well. Um, Kathy, where do you see the role of the scientist in this coming era of wearables, sleep and circadian tracking technology to really unlock their potential further? So I have one, and it's distinct, but I want to first piggyback on what Max said. Max and Luca literally gave the community a way to do this, right? The framework to appropriately assess the agreement of a wearable tool with ground truth scored PSG is available to all people. And if you submit a paper and I handle it with your comparator study and you haven't done that, I mean, we don't, it's been put out there into the scientific community by the best. And I just think that's our first responsibility is 
<laughs> let's follow the best practices that have been set forth because there's a reason that they're there. My second thing that I think is a big barrier that needs to be surmounted kind of thinking at this at a more macro level is that we believe it or not. And the, when I work with our researchers that are these measurement-based research folks, we don't know if tracking sleep helps anything. We, we actually don't know. There's a few papers that, that sort of get at this with actigraphy. Um, they're buried in the literature. People don't cite them. We don't know if this helps anything, right? So before, you know, we really create these giant infrastructures, which I do think we need a data infrastructure of at minimum PPG, risk-worn PPG and risk-worn acceleration data running against PSG to, you know, test these algorithms once developed. Um, but, but we don't even, we need to figure out, you know, how this impacts outcomes. Does it reduce time to diagnosis? Does it improve quality of care? Does it reduce the economic burden of sleep disorders? Or does it just make people anxious about their sleep or take a group of people who already have very good health behaviors and, you know, kind of improve their health or give them more data by tracking? And that's something we need to really, really figure out um, as we, you know, create these infrastructures that are going to cost millions of dollars to do this in a rigorous way. Fantastic. Again, taking a step back and looking at the bigger picture, are we actually doing good in many ways? What are we doing here uh, is, is at the core of that. And I, I just, I fully align with that, Kathy. And I, I love that ethos quite a bit. Now, I got to thank both of you for your time, your energy, your insight. Um, I've done a few podcasts as a guest myself on this topic, sometimes with you, uh, in a panel format. And I don't think I've ever gotten this deep or really heard these bigger pictures unpacked at such a comprehensive, rich level. So I just thank you both for for going down this journey with me today and and also the whole team for the efforts in this document. You know, it's it's extensive, right? It's upwards of 60 pages, listeners. So um, find some time, carve out hours to sit there and and um, utilize this thing appropriately because a lot of, I would say, just um, passion went into it from the team. Uh, and that really started with Max. So I just thank you for kind of setting that framework and, and what we wanted to do here. Now, to close down our, our deeper dive discussion, I'm always curious just to hear the experts on where they see sleep measurement and circadian measurements, the longitudinal measurement of it, getting kind of habitual data uh, over time in a best resolution possible, as comprehensively as we can possibly, uh, and perhaps in a different manner than we're doing now, how they see that unfolding in the next five years, the next 10 years, the next 15 years. I know it's a very large question, but Kathy, what are your thoughts? How do you see the progression, the evolution of sleep measurement, circadian measurement as well happening over these, you know, uh, near and distal years? Absolutely. And for me, it's the conceptualization of sleep as a multidimensional construct. So not just duration, not just timing, 
not just quality, but taking these different characteristics into account, as well as the daytime impact simultaneously. And the advanced analytics that we have now with machine learning, we now have flexible algorithms where relationships don't have to be just linear, for example. So we can really understand those variables, even though there's a lot of collinearity with them. Um, but that's sleep, right? It's just not one thing, right? So I think furthering the field really will lean on that multi-domain definition of sleep health. I love it. And I, I'm hand up. Like I just get so excited when you bring that up because that is my platform right now as well. The soapbox I've been on is just trying to usher in this new era of thinking about sleep from this multidimensional construct and getting better tools to assess it and getting a different conceptualization. Cause I see a lot of movement with the kind of, are you sated questionnaire being utilized a lot, quite a bit, but I haven't seen a ton of movement in the objective space of trying to develop some sort of open source, reproducible manner of capturing the multi-dimensions of sleep health and synthesizing it down into usable information to better characterize disordered and non-disordered sleep. Um, so I love where you're coming from there. And Max, what do you think about the future of sleep and circadian measurement and the near and kind of distal future? Well, globally, I think it's uh, uh, all this type of measure that uh, will be advanced uh, from this tracker, but not only like a, a specific like a sleep classification measure, like uh, for uh, total sleep time, sleep timing, any kind of circadian measure, but also like uh, the physiology of sleep, what's happened physiologically, like I said before. I think all these measures will be feeding uh, uh, diagnostic and prognostic uh, algorithm for, for health. That is what I see the future of this device, the real power of this device uh, clinically. And then for scientific purpose, I think uh, uh, we now see an uptrend for integration with ecologic momentum assessment, uh, as well as environmental factor. Uh, and that is, uh, there is a massive opportunity to scale up our understanding of sleep uh, from a, a cross-cultural level, from a, from a, from a behavioral level, uh, what is, uh, what is uh, uh, affecting what. We had a recent study looking at the high granularity, timeless solution, uh, relation between uh, drinking and substance use pattern and, uh, and uh, sleep and, and cardio. Uh, respiratory function during sleep with devices like wearable. Uh, we did a work uh, recently with Luca, that's another co-author of, uh, of this paper, looking at the insomnia pathophysiology that uh, is a heterogeneous disorder and I think is a multidimensional perspective for data collection and modeling. I think is necessary to unpack this complexity. We did this study in adolescence, uh, looking at the relation between some of the mechanisms uh, that we consider underlying insomnia, like hyperarousal, bedtime hyperarousal, and the sleep. So there is, uh, again, a huge opportunity to, to multidimensional integration of uh, wearable with other tools that we have, uh, as well as uh, like geographic location uh, and, and so other like uh, more broad factor that can be integrated in this concept of uh, massive data uh, collection. Absolutely fantastic. And and maybe I'll steer us just into the darkness a little bit further. Um, 
this was a conversation that initially happened with Phil Chang, a, a co-author on this, when Phil and I were writing a book chapter about measuring sleep in the bedroom environment. We were thinking about forecasting what this would look like in 15, 20 years. And it made me think of, it was a Disney Channel movie called Smart House. And I don't think it's hard to envision at this point a habitual setting that affords the ecological assessment of, hey, Max, how are you feeling this morning? Collect data point, you know, complete PVT or whatever sort of reaction time or kind of vigilance assessment and starts to ambiently collect and conveniently collect all the data that you're both of you are describing in many ways. Do you foresee us drifting into that weirdness? Um, is that something that'll be viable in 10 years? I mean, obviously who knows, but like, is that something you think will come on the market at some point? Oh yeah. I mean, this is like, it's already happening, right? With direct to consumer advertising. I mean, and so why aren't we using those algorithms to take what's going on with our physiological measurements, our environment? And then our behavior that, yeah, I absolutely love the, you know, active research task PBT, but also our passively reported behavior, our spending, geolocation, texting patterns, voice changes, all of this, it's all there because we don't, we don't really interact outside now of our devices. Like most of our interaction is going to take place in some way through a smartphone, computer, or wearable. And so there's so much there. And yes, now it's being used to make money, but wow, wouldn't it be great to see like, hey, Kathy, you know, we noticed your divided attention was poor today. And, you know, your heart rate variability was, was really a problem last night. Like, we think you should do this. <laughs> and that that would really be amazing to have that kind of passively baked in um, to our ecosystem. I might have to change my negative lens of the world to digest that that's even a possibility. Um, but Max, do you have any thoughts on the, the fact that we're kind of organically drifting into this already and maybe one day we'll wake up and the room around me will have that type of influence? I mean, it's happening. Is the brutal true? Is already, uh, even in the, in the, even in in uh, in the life of people that are not even keen to move in that direction is uh, is organically happening uh, with uh, with uh, devices uh, or smart devices that uh, uh, voice control that you can track uh, uh, your behavior. You have a smartphone that track your behavior. You have a smart tracker. Uh, some of the ready company collect connect the dot, and you are able to connect the different uh, type of device at the same. Uh, uh, in the same, let's say, platform, and then uh, getting feedback from different type of source. Uh, so I think it is happening, and then definitely there is no any kind of indication that uh, that the, this trend is going to slow down or, or stop. Uh, so I think uh, it's going to happen. You are going to have everything integrated, everything smart, and then uh, you are going to get uh, less and less and less task from yourself, but always have like a. Uh, sensor capability and analysis that basically make your life uh, or make your task uh, easier in a certain way. 
is 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 progression i would say it's uh, whether or not that we are moving in the right direction is a different story but uh, at the end of the game when uh, google map uh, pop up i stop using map uh, i mean paper maps and then now i i lost i'm lost if i don't have my phone i cannot even get to the the point a to b and is a progression or not uh, yes it's a progression but if you remove this tool to me i'm lost uh, <laughs> same thing with probably everything else uh, i mean what is the last time that you that you were one feet away from your phone uh it's uh, it's now is you carry the phone like uh, is is part is an inter- you can consider the phone as a wearable now for an example it's is going to happen once uh, you, you they provide value in the technology and in the, in the way that they they digest your data or make your life more easy it's hard for you to go back basically you just want more and more and more augmented reality will hold a promise it is going to happen and and all, it is happening and that's the thing is whether or not our attentions actively fixated on it or not right it's happening and the things that come to my mind when you unpack that max are oh goody and would you like to run away to the mountains with me so we can escape all of this and you know start a tribe out there um we'll we'll talk back channel about that but i just got to thank both of you so much for your time your friendship your mentoring that's for me for everyone else out there, all the fantastic things you've done for this space and continue to do for this space, as well as your willingness to disseminate, not just on this platform, but on across various platforms and to really set the appropriate framework and perspective on these devices. I've always been so impressed um, with how poised you are, both of you, in the dissemination and also how you come at it where it's never about trying to amplify the discussion in one way or another. It's always about trying to take the empirical lens and trying to be rational and logical about where we're at and where we're headed. So I thank you so much for that. Before I let you go, both of you, to your awesome lives that I'm very envious of, uh, I want to close down today's episode with one final question. And I frame it as the hardest question of all, because it gives you total freedom. Um, oftentimes when we do research, we're constrained by what our mentors want us to do, but what the IRB allows us to do, by what finances are available, resources, whether our um, committees are think it's a good idea or not, all these different things. None of that exists. There are no constraints. So Max, if you are afforded unlimited funding, there's no constraints, time's not even an issue to explore a singular sleep in circadian topic what would you invest investigate i will go back go back to the basic question why we sleep um i think uh, um, it is really and especially within the topic that we are talking now i mean we have the capability of having the multi-source of data for really understanding how sleep is really impacting any single micro aspect of our life, whether or not you get on a, on a, on a plane and you travel international, whether or not you go for a run, whether or not you do, you do some kind of, uh, uh, you do a podcast, whatever you do, cognitively, there is some, 
so many aspects that you can interact that interact with sleep in your life and really uh, unpack this and understanding uh, how much uh, important is this this sleep this what we call sleep in our life i think is what i would like to go back and and really try to understand it's really a, a big mystery to me it's uh, uh, we just keep going uh, see on a, on a spotty research here and there how much is impacting different domain uh, having a global crazy vision that uh, that really highlight uh, uh, on a 360 degree how sleep is important i think it's something that i would like to explore it's fascinating to me i fully agree kathy how about yourself no constraints at all you get to pursue whatever topic I guess their constraint is it has to be related to sleep and circadian science. But outside of that constraint, what would you like to investigate? How do we make sleep an equitable pillar of health? Um, we've really just like glutted the media with sleep tips, um, you know, sleep information. And the reality of the problem is, you know, time is a luxury and more so for some people than others. And our most vulnerable populations can't enact the behaviors that we recommend. So how do we make this something equitable for all individuals is what I would work towards. A major systemic issue and thankfully getting more attention. Uh, I hope you can put your attention to that because uh, your brain and personality and passion would be very helpful for pushing that major need forward. And again, I thank you both so much for your time. It's been an absolute pleasure. I'm certain this will be a gift to the listeners and we'll release it around the holiday season. So a gift indeed. Um, thank you again, both of you. Thank you, Jesse. I just want to make a comment on Katie. Uh, note, uh, I think uh, like six years ago when, uh, when uh, I, explore virtual reality that was uh, one of my my mission i was always uh, uh, conceptualized that with virtual reality if you can make people sleep in the in a virtual world they can be finally equal at least for one time and uh, for one time is one third of their life so that is another application of uh could be a weird technology application for making uh, your your sleep night uh, let's say equal across the world I love that. Yeah. Absolutely beautiful. All right. You two go have some fun with your lives. Thank you again. And that concludes this episode of the Sleep Research Society podcast. Thank you very much for listening. If you have any comments or suggestions for content or ways to enhance the podcast, then please feel free to send an email to sleepresearchsocietypodcast at gmail.com. Again, that is sleepresearchsocietypodcast at gmail.com. Before officially closing down this episode, I would like to directly thank the leadership of the Sleep Research Society, as well as the board of directors for their support of this initiative. Additionally, I'd like to thank the Sleep Research Society Communications Committee for their efforts in the development and maintenance of this podcast. Also, I'd like to thank chronobiologist Dr. Rulof Hutt for graciously providing the podcast intro and outro music. Lastly, I'd like to thank the community of fantastic sleep and circadian researchers that comprise the Sleep Research Society, as well as all other listeners of this podcast. Thank you, and until next time, sleep well.